Graves. Hi, welcome to Get Mad with yours truly. Today we have a great guest. Uh, we usually have some really, really good guests on here, but we have a really great guest, kind of like my the one I just had, Miss uh, Mary Ellen Moore of Free Mind Films. I'd like to, I'd like to, um, like to introduce my uh, my guest is uh, Chris Emery of Free Mind Films as well. That's uh, Miss Moore's partner. And he has been a part of such um, great documentaries as A Noble Lie, Oklahoma City, 1995, State of Mind, and also Shadow Ring. Uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Emery. Well, Chris, it's an honor. Thank you so much for having me. <clears throat> well, thank you, sir. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, for those that are not familiar with A Noble Lie, uh, it's basically... I want to say it's even better, in my opinion. It's like the equivalent to 9-11's Loose Change, but I think it's light years ahead ahead of that, uh, not to put anyone else's work down, but just in terms of uh, the professional quality of it and everything. So uh, kudos to you, sir, for putting together a noble lie. And and what brought you what brought you to um, wanting to shed some some more light on that? topic of Oklahoma City in 1995. Well, I do want to say uh, thank you for the compliment, Chris. It was a nice introduction, but I I do not want to take any thunder or anything away from uh, Jason Burmis and Corey Rowe and Dylan Avery. Those guys, they put out four parts on their their series, and they were the ones that inspired us, actually, to uh, when we were on the fence um, for about the first year and a half after I moved to Oklahoma City back in early 2003. Um. I hope I didn't. I hope I didn't come across yeah. that. Yeah. I didn't no, 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 no. I just there. want to let you know that. No. Okay. That, thank you for the compliment, but uh, we're that's a pretty big shoes to fill there. With <laughs> so, was, uh, and I, I was very blessed to uh, meet all three of them uh, at the, I believe it was the five year anniversary of nine eleven in New York City. Yeah. And um, we were still. Let me think here. It would have been uh, six years away from release. Five years away from releasing the film at that point. And, um, yeah, we, they, they were amazing. And Jason, uh, all three of them were very, very good. So thank you for the compliment. Um, but, uh, what inspired me, hold on one second. Sorry, I got a little frog in my throat. Didn't want to, uh, cough yeah. on the phone. <laughs> no problem. Um, the, uh, it was, a, there was a lot of things, uh, back, I believe it was in, um, just trying to rewind the tape here. Uh, late 1999, I had, uh, just, uh, happened to be in a, a bookstore in, uh, the Fort Worth area where I was living at the time and wife was out doing some shopping, uh, at some store, a couple of stores down in, uh, this, this small strip mall. And I walked in and was looking at the political and, uh, history section of this bookstore and I picked up a book. This is what really piqued my interest. It was, um, The Secret Life of Bill Clinton by Ambrose Evans Pritchard, who, 
was working as the bureau chief for the I believe the Lund the uh, the Guardian yes. in Washington D.C. and uh, he was he did well, a lot of work was, on uh, the Vince Foster case I believe right absolutely absolutely and he was getting in the hair of the Clinton administration and many many phone calls and I'm sure emails and letters and uh, hand wringing was done to uh, by his bosses in London to make sure that he got out of town. Because he was being a thorn in the on the side of, of the Clintons and all the malcontents in Washington at the time, uh, and he ended up getting a promotion as a um, bureau chief in Brussels and then taking over the economic uh, news and the coverage just as the euro was coming in. Anyway, um, it's neither here nor there. But I, I had a chance to talk to his secretary before he moved out of Washington and, and re- passed along a compliment to the book. But there were four chapters in that book that dealt with the Clintons and their corruption and the just absolute abject uh, disregard for any letter of the law. Uh, to this day, I still think they should both be in prison. And I'm, I'm sure there are millions of others that will line up right behind me saying the same thing. Absolutely. Um, but yep. uh, there was out of the, the four chapters, I believe two of them covered the Oklahoma City bombing and what the Clintons did to make things go sideways real quick uh, with, with this case. And uh, that's just not hearsay or conjecture. We, as a film crew, we dug down deep and uh, actually uh, had some contacts in, in uh, Little Rock. And um, that that was an amazing trip just to get over there and do some interviews. Um, knowing the background of the Clintons. It sounds like a documentary of its own. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll never forget that trip, but we can get to that in a few minutes. But I, that was probably one of the few trips in the eight and a half years that it took to get us to film out that I was honestly – scared for my life we had an off-duty a police officer come with us um fully armed and we crossed into arkansas did the interview and some stuff for about four hours and as soon as we crossed back in oklahoma i almost got out of the car and kissed the ground um because uh we were looking over our shoulder and that that's not an exaggeration knowing what i know about the clintons and the yeah. you know uh second third fourth degree removed of how they hire people to do their dirty work um uh, we we just got our work done and got the hell out of there. And um, so anyway, but that that book is what inspired me. And I thought, wow, um, you know, that the story is completely upside down. And he did a good yeoman's job of at least um, scratching the surface and, and digging out and, and really getting some honest questions uh, out there exposed and say, hey, you know, we need to take a fresh look at this case. Not too long after, um, after I read that book, I was asked to step away from the, the downing of TWA 800. And I think Mary Ellen alluded to that, that uh, uh, she's got a great perspective on that case. And then I was blessed to be able to study it for two and a half years. We could share some of that in the interview if you'd like. Yeah, I would very uh, much but, appreciate, but yeah, yeah, I would hope so. Cause that's one of my core uh, issues too, is TWA 800. But I, I had a family member that was working for the airlines at the time and the em- employees union with TWA threatened them with their job. And I thought, well, that's odd. I'm not an employee. Uh, of the airline, but uh, they wanted them fired unless I stepped away. And actually, I got to meet with his family member's boss at the Dallas station. They only had two gates. It was a small station for TWA. And he put it in no uncertain terms that, yeah, this family member would be fired unless I stepped away. And he got the call from International Association of Machinists at Lambert Field, which is their headquarters, Lambert International in, in St. Louis, basically giving him the 
you know, the, the, the here to and the what for about the whole thing. And I says, well, um, Bob was his first name. I says, you know, I'm not working for the airlines. <clears throat> and you could tell, you know, with all due respect, this is you can tell your context that I am to go stick it where the sun doesn't shine. And I says, <laughs> I've got a plan B. And uh, my I pulled out several aces in the hole, and I, I really I did a roundabout and really stuck it to him. Yeah. Um, and I, I backed off. I, I said, okay. But um, anyway, the uh, so I'd say about a month after that, I was kind of bummed. I, I couldn't pursue that case. But I passed that intel and, and stuff that I had researched and got together onto a contact. Uh, Bob Sanders did a beautiful job on two uh, DVD um Oh, are you talking about uh, James Sanders and his wife Elizabeth, right? They're James Sanders. Yeah, James That's Sanders. Right. That's okay, it. yeah. Yeah. I have and, both uh, of his wife. Yeah. Yeah, he's just amazing. Um and um so he um he did a great job on those films. His wife, I guess, was a former flight attendant, so she had a personal interest in the case too. So anyway, they both got charged too. The the, the uh, Justice Department well, went they, after them as whistleblowers. Well, I believe. they they went after them, but they were exonerated, and that that's a classic case. It, yeah. I believe it's covered in his paperback, where prosecutor brought in a bunch of interns into the courtroom, thinking that he was going to have a banner day in court, and the judge basically uh, put the prosecution in their place and told them to get the hell out. And the yeah. uh, Sanders was exonerated of all charges. Exactly. Um, <laughs> it was great. Boy, you know. Yeah, that prosecutor was licking his wounds and with his tail between his legs on the way out of the courtroom, so to speak. So, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, Sanders stuck it to him, and good for him. So, um, anyway, uh, it just it, it was odd. After uh, I, I was able to, uh, I got in touch with a um, a contact in, in Fort Worth that uh, had some raw footage of the, the Oklahoma City bombing case about three hours of beta master footage for those of your listeners aren't familiar with beta masters before digital, the, the studios would have these, they were large, um, real to real uh, tapes uh, almost. Oh yeah. Yeah. This was way above SVHS and the best of the best on, on tape. Um, so, and then from there, of course, it, everything leapfrogged to digital, but beta masters would be used to uh, tape commercials and newscasts and they would keep them for a certain amount of time. And, and then taped over them. <laughs> That's how sturdy this tape was. It was it was pretty pretty thick gauge, and I yeah. believe it was three quarter inch. Yeah. So wow. anyway, uh, we saw the unedited, unedited raw footage that um, was not run up the flagpole, but it was uh, satellite uplinks that CBS and NBC and their, the flagship headquarters would not touch because it was too graphic. And I remember walking out of Jerry's house uh, after watching all three hours, and I was stunned. I said, "Wow." Uh, this has absolutely nothing to do with the narrative that was shoved down our throat for so many years. And at the time, I was working for a small production studio in Fort Worth and doing biographical documentaries, 18 to 26 minutes, you know, films. And so I, I had the the knowledge of how to put one together, um, but we had to extrapolate the budget and the, the size of the crew and just the logistics. We had to go to several yeah. Before that, had you heard of the uh, the footage that contained, um, you know, the bomb truck uh, backing up to take out the unexploded devices? Had you heard of that prior to all this? I, I, I probably in passing, but you know what? I was so deep into the TWA case, I really didn't have a chance to go okay. into. Yeah, yeah I, it wasn't until that I moved to Oklahoma City and I had a really good contact at the State Historical Society. Um, 
which has now moved. There's a beautiful building just north of the state capitol in downtown, in, uh, north of downtown Oklahoma City. But um, of all things, my God, I'll never forget this. <laughs> the first set of videotapes, VHS tapes that they gave me to look at, and I was there after hours, and they said, now you stay as long as you want till the janitor shows up, and I'd be there till 8, 9 o'clock sometimes at night. Just an amazing crew. And um, come to find out, somebody on the staff there, one of their relatives was severely injured in, in the bombing, so they, they were very happy to see that at least there was somebody that was trying to get a, you know, the alternate yeah. perspective on what was going on anyway. Yeah. But um, if I could share, it, it was it was comical, but it, it was tragic and, and weird at the same time. The story broke that Wednesday morning, April 19, 1995. And to set the context, if I may, real quick, Chris, Ed, if, yes, you let me please. know when you're going to come into the break here. Oh, sure, sure. Um, uh, so there was a prayer breakfast, and I believe it kicked off at 8.30 that morning, but the TV crews that normally do the morning news at studio, they had um, even the, the AM anchors and, and some of the A-team were down there because you had the governor, the, you know, the priests, the rabbis, the pastors, and the, you know, the city councilman, everybody was down there. It was a once-a-year affair at the convention center, which was about, I believe, um, well, now the new one, of course, wasn't around, but Cox Convention Center at the time was about eight, eight nine blocks south of the bombing site. Yeah. So all of the TV crews are there. Well, they sit down at 8.30, you know, convocation, and they do the uh, the prayers and the introductions, and all hell breaks loose two minutes after nine. And nobody really knew what happened for the first couple of minutes. So we rewound the tape back to nine o'clock. And I'm watching these VHS tapes of, of, of the the live coverage on Channel 4 that morning. And Maury Povich's show comes on. And um, just after commercial break, he's going intro back into the segment. And... It was just some. It was like Jerry Springer back then. It was nuts. It was just some ludicrous stuff going on, and all of a sudden, they preempt the Maury Povich show, and you've got the B team weatherman and a young African American gal, really sharp, but you could tell she wasn't with the studio that long. They're breaking the story on air live, and I thought, wow, these poor <laughs> guys—they're running around like deer, in, you know, in the headlights, and they're going on and off camera. And I thought, wow, this is really. <laughs> this is unprepared. <laughs> yeah, I, I was, you know, I'd worked for CBS uh, in a third tier market for four years, and I, I was looking at these poor people, and I thought, geez, you know, how do you break a story this monumental, and your A team is completely out of the studio? They're 12 miles away. <laughs> yeah. So they did the best they could, and then you could tell the crescendo built up in the studio, and finally everybody was coming back, and then they'd get on air, they're getting mic'd up, and the camera's just capturing all this stuff. It was unbelievable. And um, it, it was just insane to see how it all came together. Many years later, in 2007, I ended up having lunch with uh, Devin Skillian. If you remember this name now, here's a, another weird thing. Channel I 4 do. in Oklahoma City, NBC affiliate was Channel 4. Yeah. He already signed a contract with NBC affiliate in Detroit, Channel 4, which is unusual. Normally, we don't have the same call, you know, uh, number. But... Yeah. Uh, his his contract was already signed, and he had two more weeks left on the contract with Oklahoma City before he moved to Detroit. So he was the PM anchor. Okay, so you put this together. Devin was asleep in bed the morning when the bombing happened. He got woke up out of bed, and he told me about three doors down, he had a uh, Oklahoma County Sheriff deputy, his neighbor. 
Welcome to Hannaford. I'm hungry, Dad. I know, buddy. Look, all your favorites. Oh, yeah. Hannaford brand tastios. <gasps> Nature's Promise apples. <gasps> Taste of Inspiration's five cheese pizza. Yum, yum, and yum. Do we earn rewards on all these store brands? Well, sir, excellent question. Attention shoppers, earn rewards on all Hannaford store brands. Well, what do you know? I was going to say that. It's simple to save with my Hannaford rewards. They hopped in a squad car after Devin got out of the shower and they raced back to, down to the studio because he had to be there right away. And so he's this this car is escorting him down the highway, lights flashing, siren going, gets him to the studio and he gets in there and it's like he said it was pandemonium. People were just trying to, you know, they they were finally by that time they were getting. Uh, calls from the flagship stations in Chicago and New York and Miami, you know, like what the hell's going on out there in Oklahoma city. So that was one layer of confusion. And then getting these, the B team that broke the story, trying to get you know, what was going on from them, what they had coming in. Then the governor's office is chiming in. It wouldn't be till about four hours after that, three and a half hours after that, that the FBI would roll in from Washington, DC and basically tell them, give them the marching orders and say, hey, this is the, the narrative. Yeah, the cover story. Exactly. Exactly. So, but Devin, you know, here we are at Slow's Barbecue in, in down, uh, north of downtown Detroit, across from Old Tiger Stadium, having a barbecue for three hours. And my girlfriend and, and myself and he and his wife just sat there and he walked me through the whole story. And you know what he told me? He says, Chris, he said, I had to move out of town two weeks after that. He says, I never got the full story of what really happened. He says, you're the first person that actually took the time to tell me. And he says, I am really appreciative of what you're doing. He wasn't glad handing me or patronizing me. He says, he honestly didn't know because right. he, he was under contractual obligation to move. And two weeks later, the moving truck's in his driveway and they're going to Detroit. So yeah. it was really a lot of unsettled business for him. And, uh, well, he, didn't, he, didn't, yeah. well, he didn't get a chance to talk to his, his, his coworkers before he left about all this. Footage. Well, he did. He did. Like I said, oh, there was okay. two weeks left, but yeah, but still then, I mean, there was still so much yeah. coming in, but he did tell me that they were getting one story from the, the, the Oklahoma highway state patrol, the Oklahoma city police department, yeah. the Oklahoma County sheriffs, and then the governor's security detail. And they were, it was cohesive. They, they, they knew that there was a lot of well, exploded ordinance among many things in the building. Yeah. The FBI comes in and says, that's it. We're cleaning this late. This is what you're going to start. And he's, he, this teletype is coming across his desk and he's looking at, he said the first time that the AM and the PM anchor in studio. Remember, this is at 930 in the morning, 945. And the FBI rolls and he says by one o'clock, they're getting yeah. a completely bullcrap story from the FBI that makes absolutely no sense has no cohesive um, quality at all, nothing to do with what they were finding out in the first four hours. Like and with the rider truck, right? The rider truck, for example, started out as a car and then turned into a right. pickup truck and then a van. Right. And then a van and then a rider. He says, but that was because they, they didn't know the intel. They didn't have their crew down there. But the bike patrol, the highway patrol, and the county sheriffs, yeah. they were bringing this stuff in either by radio or by, you know, just calling them and saying, hey, what's going on? I don't think, yeah, they did have flip phones back then, but uh, texting wasn't all that good. The SMS wasn't very good. Um, so anyway, uh, it, it's, he's, it was interesting. And it just, I was just sitting there across the table from this barbecue restaurant. And I thought, wow, this is a perspective that I've never had. But it was coming literally from what he experienced that morning. And uh, I told him about the Maury Povitz footage. And he went back and he says it, it was, he said it was 
if it wasn't so tragic, it'd be kind of funny. It was like, all of a sudden, you're going from a Jerry Springer type of lunacy to this. And it's, it's like, real holy lunacy. crap. Yeah. Yeah, to sit up straight and pay attention. Let's get our act together here and figure out what the hell is going on. It would make sense. But he was really perturbed when uh, even his, his, uh, the, the AM anchor that he was sitting with, uh, they knew that they, they didn't appreciate having their in- intelligence insulted. You know, they were they're being treated like five-year-olds. And he says, that's not the way you do things in the TV industry. You know, it just uh, back then he he didn't appreciate being talked down to, you know, right. and uh, from and it wasn't from the local FBI field office. It was these are the the big shoulders coming in from Washington, Washington. And yeah. So anyway, I'm kind of rambling now, on here. But well, no, no, this is very important. I feel like uh, for those that don't are not really that familiar with what we're talking about right now, those initial reports were of unexploded bombs that were inside the building. That right, right. They had to. They actually had to uh, put the rescue efforts on hold like two or three times, and may have been responsible for some people's deaths because of that. Correct. These false now, alarms, so to speak. Well, here's here's the thing. What what we found out, the National Weather Service. And of course, remember, we're as a film crew, we're digging into this thing seven and a half years, almost eight years after the fact. So yeah. we had to go back, and it was a beautiful day. It was uh, in the high forties. Wind coming from the north at about 35, 40 miles an hour. There is a pretty good gust of wind coming from north Oklahoma City. The Murrah building is in downtown, just north of downtown, right smack in the middle of the city at 5th and uh, 4th and 5th and Robinson. Uh, and you got Harvey and Broadway on the east and west side. I, I just closed my eyes and I just I'm visualizing the map right now, the layout of the building and where it was. So if you go modern day, if you log on to the Oklahoma City National Memorial website, um, by the way, they still pan to the stock narrative. So, but they do have a good overhead view of of where the reflection pool is. That was actually Fifth Street, where yeah. the the rider truck was parked. Now, rider truck, of course, was a decoy. That was simply an afterthought. And now, why do we say that? Because we did um, get intel. There were twelve. There were uh, multiple, survivors. multiple yeah. rider trucks, right? Yeah. Well, that that, but the, the the survivors from the building, you know, obviously felt the building shaking as though it was an earthquake. One key factor was Dr. Jack Goben. He worked for the uh, Department of uh, <clears throat> Customs of Border Patrol, but he dealt with more of the agricultural side to make sure that any plants or fruits or anything that were coming into the airport weren't didn't have contagions or disease on them. Right. His office was actually on the, I want to say the third, no, the sixth floor, and he said he was overlooking the nursery, which was in the south side. They still have a mock-up of where the nursery was the kids play area there if you go to the memorial to this day i was out there last year by the way for the 27 yeah. year anniversary i drove up there anyway I there too yeah very uh yeah so very, you're, very you're familiar with it. oh yeah um yeah. but dr gobin used to live in san francisco so he was very familiar with earthquakes it was pretty much like tornadoes in oklahoma you know and um his vertical blinds if you can visualize this now <clears throat> i visited him in late 2003 the office that he had a couple of miles away from the Murrah building was an exact mock-up, a replica of basically his office in the Murrah building. And I thought, wow. He said, yeah, it looks exactly like this. Vertical blinds, everything. All the square footage is almost the same. Had the same layout of the desk, the printer, the coffee machine, everything. And um, he said that those vertical blinds are going from side to side, and the building was shaking. And he thought, 
what the hell? We got an earthquake here in Oklahoma City. How often does that happen? And uh, he hit yeah. the deck, went under his desk, and then the glass blew in. And I says, was it about a five to eight count? And he says, yeah. He was just, the reason he was counting was to see how long the earthquake was going to last. It was a habit they got into when he lived in San Francisco. Because the longer yeah. it lasts, he says, you're going to get aftershocks. It was, just, it was just mental recall of what he was used to in San Francisco. And I thought, wow, okay. Wow. And he says, yeah, it was about a six count. And then all of a sudden the windows blew in. And... Um, and then he heard mortar rounds going off. He says, yeah, he was in Vietnam. He, he knows what mortar rounds were. And, and I says, um, that was the gas tanks in the vehicles across the street exploding. So I'm, I'm putting this all together, Chris, and, and how do I explain this? It no, it's very important because there were multiple blasts yeah. in the building. All right. Well, here's the thing. He said that that building was shaking, which means, and we know, from people from the Oklahoma County Bound Squad, one contact in particular was a medic. I'm not going to name names. Um, but they said, yeah, there were 23 devices in the building. Three had gone off. They had high military-grade mercury switches. He says, you can't buy this stuff off the shelf at Ace Hardware yeah. or Lowe's. I don't think Lowe's and uh, Home Depot were even around back then. But he said, yeah, you, these are custom-made. Chris, yeah. can I, admit, can I mm-hmm. tell you this right off the bat, just because not only was the anniversary of Oklahoma City a couple of days ago, but yesterday, right. Columbine, that was the anniversary. Yes. And in the beginning, there's news footage where they said some of these bombs have mercury switches on them as well. Jesus Christ. Exactly. Yeah, so, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, you can't, teenagers yeah. can't just walk into the hardware no. store and obtain this. That's why I want to. No, that. no that, that's good. Um, uh, mercury switches. Yeah, that's these are uh, they, they have barometric switches or electronic timers on them. The barometric is used for if you want to blow up a plane, you get to a certain altitude. Those things, you know, the the uh, the pressure bubbles are well, crack. There's They're evidence that JFK Jr.'s plane <laughs> yeah. actually suffered from a barometric one, too. But but I, I didn't mean yeah. to cut you off. But when you said there were three, no, 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 that's, that's right. 23 there in the building. Okay. Yeah, 23 devices, two, uh, three of them had gone off, and the other 20 were set to go off 10 minutes after the initial blast. And I asked the, the contact at the bomb squad, and they says, yeah, he said, that's typical. He had served in the military in the first Persian Gulf War, and he was on the um, – remember the movie Hurt Locker? Well, he did. He had similar role to that of, oh, de- wow. of uh, defusing bombs. Yeah. And he said, yeah. Anyway, that, that's a whole other side story there, but he says – the uh, the intention of the ten minute difference was you get the walking wounded, your search and rescue, and search and re- or the um, first responders, and then the building goes down on them, and it's even more atrocious. The body count would just go right through the roof. And that because was a common the, terrorist tactic, right, for secondary explosions or recoveries. Uh, we had a, a contact with the CIA that uh, helped us out on some later on a few years down the road. And I asked him about the, the time delay, and, he, and I says, first of all, why 902? And he says, because you set your device to go off two minutes after you get your ass out of there. You two minutes to get the hell out of Dodge. He says, you don't want to stick around for that, obviously. You're going to kill yourself. So that's basically either two or three minutes, but typically two minutes to avoid any suspicion. When you're leaving the, the, crime, the crime scene, get out. You get yourself two minutes to get the hell out of the way. And then 10 minutes later, sometimes they'll delay it for 15 minutes, depending on the size of, of the property or the target that they have. Yeah. And everybody's in there just trying to mill around and figure out what's going on. And then, boom, the rest of hell just comes right 
you know, they, as they say, the temple comes down on your head. It's well, because on 9-11, that's what I thought that the secondary explosions were originally. I thought they were a part that's of the right. attack. Possibly, we that's a, that's a whole other. No, but I mean, effect. at the time, no. On yeah. the day, I thought because of what happened at Oklahoma City, I thought that the, the later on they were going to let us know whoever the hijackers were had access to the building somehow. But we never right. got that that information okay. that got swept away. These other explosions, and I cut you off again. I apologize. Sorry. No, 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 no. That, that's okay. My uh, business partner uh, with Mary Ellen and I, he was a security guard in Oklahoma City at the time. He actually applied for a job, get this, um, a month before the bombing. It was uh, late, about the third week in March. And uh, they were due to hire him on on the 15th of April. He just didn't have the, um, the, the, the level of experience that they were looking for. But he, he was a private investigator, had a uh, concealed carry permit. And he was having breakfast that morning about three blocks away um, at um, – at a local fresh bakery and uh, they come out and uh, they heard the explosions. And he says, the first thing they did is they put their holsters ready to pull out their, their pistols or their, uh, the Glocks they had. And the second thing they did, he says, is by instinct. He says, you don't look for who's running toward the, the crime scene. You look, you see who's, who's hauling ass to get away. He says, those typically are the perps. And he says, they couldn't find anybody. They, they didn't see anybody running away or driving away at a high rate of speed. Yeah, and they they heard the police band. They they got on the phone with their contacts at the county sheriff and the police department. And they said, "Hey, uh, we're going to be on the lookout. We'll help you guys get your black and whites down here." And the fire department, you know, hazmat. Everybody showed up. They had twenty, twenty two or twenty three different responding um, area fire departments, police departments. It was unbelievable the amount of response they had within forty five minutes. Um, but uh, if if you remember the picture. That the the fireman the, it was it was on the the front page of the Oklahoma and the next so morning, holding holding the ba- the baby that was dying no no that that was that was different it was uh, okay. Bailey uh, Bailey Allman the baby this is a different this is a fireman that was actually at the Hazmat fire station five blocks away he was the first on the scene and um, he told yeah. me that uh, yeah he was there was a bomb that was buried by some of the uh, debris across the street he got him out of there. And then he had this first, first fatality, poor gal. I'm not going to get graphic on the phone here with all due right. respect to the uh, right. family, but he told me that, um, you can imagine that she got out of her car, was putting coins into the parking meter uh, right in front of the mirror building. And yeah. her body was wrapped around the parking meter. She was eight months pregnant and, um, he had to put a toe tag on what was left of her leg below, below the knee. That was it. Anyway, it's, uh, yeah. And he said from the, he said, that's when he realized the, the adrenaline and everything was so high in his body. And he realized yeah. this is going to be a, excuse me, a, you know, what storm. And um, yeah. that was the first, that was the first body that he found. And uh, poor gal didn't even know what hit her, literally. Literally. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, it, uh, you know, it, it's, and of course, like I mentioned in the previous interview, we, how many years later, two years after that, well, by the way, this particular that that fireman. If you go on to the Daily Oklahoma uh, and Google Daily Oklahoma, April 20, 1995, you'll see the cover photo of that, and that's him. That was he's walking yeah. around in his his hard hat and his uniform and his boots, just trying to make sense of what the hell just happened twenty twenty five minutes beforehand, and uh, he was instrumental in getting us 
on um, CD-ROM back then, yeah. uh, the soundtrack of all of the the dispatch tapes that from literally from the morning, from the, the minute the first call came in, and then you had all of these different departments calling into the Oklahoma City Fire Department saying, yeah. hey, where do you need us? You know, And then dispatchers going nuts who just lit up like a Christmas tree, but you could hear the crescendo just build up. And... Um, yeah, and it was um, the, his battalion chief was the one that had the masters. It's Jeep 4x4 season. Make your next adventure epic and hurry in now for great deals. And now while qualified lessees get an ultra-low mileage lease on the 2023 Jeep Wrangler Willys 4xe for $3.59 a month for 36 months with $3,279 due at signing. Tax title license extra. No security deposit required. Call 1-888-925-JEEP for details. Requires dealer contribution at least through Stellantis Financial. Extra charge for miles over $22,500. Not all customers will qualify. Residency restrictions apply. Take delivery by 7523. Jeep is a registered trademark. <laughs> and I don't care. I'm going to call Frank Heating and his security detail out on this. Yeah, please do. Please do. Set those guys. Yeah, they, I hope I'm not holding you up here. You got to go to break. No, no, no. This is. A, we'll go to break right after you say what you're about to say. But I agree with the no, Frank Keating thing. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's uh, Keating sent a couple of his guys from his security detail to the. This is after his battalion chief had died, and they went to his house and asked the wife for the masters of the real the real uh, audio from the dispatch tapes that morning, and the wife says, "All right." You get me a subpoena, and uh, you come here with a court order, and he says, she says, I'll give you copies. She says, otherwise, get the hell out, or I'm going to call the cops. Yeah. <laughs> she had the masters in the safe, and then got a hold of this this fireman that helped us. And she, and she says, you need to get these backed up to CD-ROM. She says, and right. after that, you're not nobody's getting the reel-to-reel. And thank God that she yeah. knew that uh, they, they wanted to take all the originals because they, they wanted to start putting this down the rabbit hole, and, you know, that was it. And so you basically want to go to hell. So, it's like the TWA-800 uh, videos showing a missile hitting that flight is that yeah. went down the memory hole, too. All right, but but for, those, anyway. for those that don't don't know uh, who we're talking about, Frank Keating was the governor of Oklahoma at the time. Correct, correct. Yeah, and, he, he helped cover it up. He was one of the dirty 30 that we – uh, oh, 30 yeah. people that we together so that uh kind of cover the case up anyway oh, absolutely so. but all right so what we're going to do is we're going to take a little five minute break here and when we come back i want to i want to kind of get into we we hear about officer terrence eke and his uh mm-hmm. murder in my opinion um yeah but we don't really get to hear too much about another figure by the name of michael loudenschlager who, oh boy! Oh boy! That one, yeah. I think it's important yeah. for a lot of people to hear his backstory as well. So, everyone, yes, we'll be right back. You are listening to Get Mad with Chris Graves. Wall Street Window.com. Gold, silver, the stock market. Wall Street Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. Wall Street Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State. Understood these trends professionally for many years, and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge. 
WallStreetWindow.com. Go there now. Go there now. Go there now. TheAchelli.com Radio Network. Go ahead, call it. Yeah, I'm interested in the truth about the JFK assassination. Right. Well, what do you want to know? Judy Baker's wild claim. Oswald girlfriend. She knew Ruby and Barry. Cancer weapons. Really? I imagine I could claim I have four wheels. It doesn't make me a wagon, but okay. Oswald was on the kill team and trying to prevent the murder of John Kennedy. Come on now. Has a real effort on the JFK assassination broken into her claim? Go to Amazon.com. Um, enter Judith Baker in her own words. You'll get results for a digital copy of a book where Walt Brown utilizes her own words and the known evidence in the case to get at, well, <laughs> a different perspective, let's say. You can get Judith Barry Baker in her own words from the author himself, signed, if you request it, by contacting Dr. Brown at K-I-A-S-J-F-K at AOL.com. It's a fun book, and it actually dissects the many, many fantastic claims. Judith Barry Baker in her own words. Thank you for all the great information. You are listening to Get Mad with Chris Graves. Be heard on Get Mad or any other show on Ocelli.com radio. For as little as $50 a month, you can buy an ad for your business, podcast, book, or any message you want heard on one or more of the Ocelli.com shows. To find out more, contact ads at Ocelli.com that's ads at ocelli.com. Be heard with us. Revelation through conversation. The views expressed by Caller Schools or anyone else who happens to get on the air at ocelli.com do not necessarily reflect the views of ocelli.com or Chuck Ocelli. And we are not responsible for any stupidity which might ensue. Thank you. You're listening to the ocelli.com radio network. About goddamn time at wake they wake up. Hell, I've been talking about this since 1959 about the corruption, the incredible lies, deception of the entire superstructure of Western civilization, and the incredible treason, lunacy, uh, lies, deception. Uh, it's just amazing how much has been done in the past hundred years to the human family. That was Jordan Maxwell on the Ocelli Effect. For more pods with Jordan and Chuck, search Ocelli.com, along with hundreds of other shows and topics as presented by Chuck Ocelli on Ocelli.com. Thanks for listening.
Chili.com. Revelation through conversation. Hi, welcome back to Get Mad with Chris Graves. My guest today is Chris Emery of Free Mind Films, and that's the award-winning company that's behind such classic documentaries as A Noble Lie, Oklahoma City, 1995, um, also State of Mind, and the latest is Shadow Ring. Welcome back, Mr. Emery. Thank you, Chris. Okay, so when we left, uh, I had brought up a name that a lot of people, I feel like, don't really know or are not familiar with, possibly. I mean, in the cons- quote-unquote conspiracy community, the name Officer Taranziki comes up quite a bit, and rightfully so. Sure. But there's another individual by the name of Michael Loudenslager that his what happened to him is kind of shrouded in a lot of mystery and a lot of weird weirdness, and to put it bluntly, Can you tell tell us about uh, Mr. Loudenslager. Yes, he, he uh, his office was on the second floor of the Murrah Building, toward the south side, uh, and it was the the segment that um, wasn't he had the big gaping hole at the front. That's the north side. He was in the back, and most of his office had survived uh, any severe damage. Uh, but uh, Michael worked for the GSA office and. He, um, if put it in context, he was helping out um, some individuals to try to get the uh, certificate of occupancy and recertification for the children's nursery on the second floor. So it was germane to where his office was, yeah, uh, just on the opposite side of the building. Uh, anyway, um, he he was he was pretty close with the daycare center operator Danielle Hunt. Is that correct? correct. Yeah, okay. the uh, well, they they worked hand in glove because he was actually he was an integral part of the nursery getting their certification for yes. insurance purposes, make yeah. sure they were approved by the federal government, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, Oklahoma County and the state of Oklahoma. There was a lot of different layers when you're taking care of kids like that. You've got to really have your ducks in a row, you know, more ways than one. So he was uh, he was trying to lend a hand on a professional basis and a personal basis to make sure that that certification was done. Come to find out that the federal government and the contact with the federal government would not let the assistant fire chief for Oklahoma City uh, get into the room that was below the nursery. They refused to give him the key. And I'm thinking, even he thought, you know, out loud, uh, why in the world are you... Very odd. Yeah. yeah, I mean, come on. This is the, the fire department, for God's sakes. You know, what, what do you got in there that you're trying to hide, literally? So uh, he was furious, and he found out through other sources that, yes, there was uh, uh, blasting caps, there was live ammunition in there, and the authorities that be were just too lazy to take it to the Oklahoma County Bomb Squad in the, in the gun range 10 miles outside of town, where they had a, a safe storage facility in a building that was, uh, you know, appropriate for that type of material. And, they, and it's like, are you insane? You're putting this below a nursery. Now, that room... We found out, I, I did talk to a retired architect of the original firm that designed the building. He said, no, that room wasn't built into the original plans. It wasn't on the original architect plans. It was it was built in into the Murrah building about two years after, uh, you know, the, the grand opening. So anyway, um, obviously it wasn't approved for architectural plans or whatever. So long story short, 
So Michael's alive. Now get this. This is very important to the listeners. 10, yes. 10 to 12 minutes after the bombing, he's on the site beating the living daylights out of what I found out from a search and rescue uh, individual and a member of the Oklahoma City Fire Department. This is before we got our crew together. I'm still doing a lot of the background interviews. Yeah. He said he was beating the tar out of an ATF agent and an FBI agent that were responding to the scene because he knew what was down there. And basically they were his connection to the federal government. He knew that the feds, feds, quote unquote, were hiding something in that, that room. And it contributed to the cause and to the death uh, and to the damage of the nursery, as well as to other people in the building. Uh, it was a secondary, it was a catalyst explosion to the ordinance that was already in there. Uh, it was horrendous. And, and like I said, later now, on, we did see now, photos. Before, before, you, before you go on, just as far mm-hmm. as I, I remember in my research, and I could be wrong, um, Mr. Loudenslager and uh, Mrs. Hunt and her husband, who was in charge of the security for the whole uh, Murrah building, right. I, from what I remember, they were trying to warn parents to take their kids out of that daycare at a certain point. That, is, that, is that, that correct? There may or may or I, I don't know. I, okay. I, honestly, okay. I on that avenue, but oddly enough, that could be also why he was so angry with the ATF agents that you were talking correct. about, you know? Correct. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine just laid into these guys and it took, uh, from what I found out from my contact, two Oklahoma city police officers and two members of the fire department to pull him off of these two individuals. He was going at them pretty much at the same time. They were yeah. trying to fight off his punches and he was just, he was furious. Yeah. It just so happened that my, my business partner actually interviewed with Mr. Hunt that almost a month before the bombing happened for that job. But he was tactfully turned down. He says, hey, you know, you, you can seek another opportunity. He ended up going into private investigative work. Yeah. Uh, we're still continuing on. And then, of course, the morning of, I told you what happened. All right. So getting back to Michael Loudenschlager. So that's on a Wednesday morning. We're talking before 930. He's tearing into these guys. Sunday morning. Again, from the same source that was doing the um, search and uh, rescue at the time. Yeah. Found, they said that they found him face down at his desk on the second floor, the wee hours in the morning on Sunday, between 2 and 4 a.m., laying in a pool of blood with a couple of gunshot wounds in the back of his head. Obviously, that wasn't suicide. Now, here's another weird thing. Here's another very curious wrinkle of this whole thing. He's the only victim, quote-unquote, of the bombing in the museum. You can go there to this day and see his picture. I've seen and it. They oh, yeah. Yep. oh, yeah. It's, just, it's a very, very vague, very um, not nonspecific reference to he passed away from injuries, not real, quote unquote, I believe if I'm not mistaken, I have to go back, not related to the bombing. And it's like, well, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> right. And they, you know, it's like, what? He was seen trying to rescue people. He was seen trying to rescue people after the blast. And they tried to start this rumor, whoever they are, tried to start this rumor that he had died from, like, falling debris during that rescue. No. No, who who actually did was uh, Rebecca Needham, a nurse from St. Anthony's Hospital. She went into epileptic seizures because of debris. No, Michael Loudenslager did not die of falling debris. That's complete horse crap. Exactly. And... uh, yeah, this this member of of this rescue service 
in fact, gave me a, I still have it. I was looking at my safe a few days ago, a, a piece of the original uh, stone from the Murrah building, the, the facade. And uh, he said, yeah, Michael gave that to him, um, you know, and, and that Thursday, the day after. And then wow. they come to find out and word spread fast. I mean, yeah. as soon as they found him there, it's the police and county and bikes, bike police, everybody. It's like, what the hell? That was a warning, in my opinion, to shut your Absolutely. Yeah. Executed and left for dead right there in the Murrah building. I mean, how callous and how cold and completely sinister is that? Yep. Um, So anyway, as a film crew, we went ahead and, if I remember, serves me correctly, and James Lane or any of the other guys in the crew, I believe we got a hold of his son, and he was due to come on to the film, but backed out about some time before. And he wasn't very nice about it. He says, look, I've had second thoughts. Uh, I wasn't being a jerk or, you know, jackass about it. He says, I decided not to come on because um, we were pretty much going to lay it on the line. He says, hey, why why was your dad alive on Wednesday morning? And then he find him face down. Obviously, he did not want to go there. Very and explosive, it's okay. Respect- explosive material. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, but um, but yeah, all, supposedly Michael- Officer Terrence Eakey, uh had seen – Michael Loudon Slager, too, from uh, different witness accounts. And well, that could, I, here that again, could, I, that could have contributed yeah, just, to his demise, too. I, but I'm not, I'm just, I don't want to say speculation and stuff, but I think I can't. Yeah, I, I don't, we never did put that connection together, but I'll tell you what, with, with Terry, and we could go in, I'm watching my time here, we got about 10 minutes left, um, that Terry had a 13 and a half page report to give to his commanding officer, Lieutenant Joanne Randall. And the pastor, um, the police chaplain at the time, Poe, by the name of Poe, who was actually a snake in the grass. That guy was a two-faced liar. I don't care if he was a chaplain or not. He, yeah. he uh, just uh, threw out the, the trust and the, and the confidentiality of he – was a, he, was a, he was a snitch for the feds is what he was. He was and a I'll snitch. call him out on Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he, he betrayed Terry. He betrayed several of Terry's uh, colleagues in the police department, male and female that uh, pretty much knew that, you know, that it was stinking pretty bad in Denmark, so to speak. And Poe just basically, he said, well, pray about it and let's forget about it. It's like, no, we're not forgetting about this. we got our friends and family, their kids. What yeah. the hell, what's your problem? You know, you're the chaplain here. You should be helping us out. Anyway, um, so. That's, your, that's no, enraging, Chris. That is enraging. <laughs> it, it is. And it, you know, to see this come across, you know, or, or, uh, our radar, so to speak, and to know all of these people that tried to do good and bad. Anyway, uh, Lieutenant Joe and Randall told him, ordered him to cut it down to a page and a half, and he says, I'm not lying for anybody, and basically told her to go to hell. And it was a year and three weeks after the bombing, they found him murdered and, and laying against a tree um, with uh, a gunshot wound to the side of his head, uh, ligature marks on his wrists, and rope burns on his, like he was hogtied and dragged for a mile and a half from his car after he was tortured and they found a bunch of blood in, on the floorboard of his car well, with the, car. the keys in the car. Yeah. In the, the keys were in the car and there was a knife in the glove box with not his fingerprints. Yeah. Um, so Case is closed, I guess, scene. right? <laughs> well, yeah. Oh. But uh, that, was, uh, that was Canadian County and even the sheriff, reserve sheriff deputies there that knew Terry uh, said, yeah, it was, it was horrible. When, you, when one of your own is is murdered for god's sakes you know you want to find out what happened and he was at odds with the uh the sheriff of of canadian county for other reasons but when that that sheriff stood up for him and his family 
uh, after Terry passed, and they said, no, Terry and I may have not gotten along, but nobody's going to get away with this under my watch. Yeah. And he was furious. Uh, tried to do what he could to help out the family, and we really appreciated him stepping forward. And you know, bury bury the axe he had with Terry, but he says no, nobody's going to lie about what happened to him, and uh, I'll be damned if anybody's going to lie to his eighty three year old grandmother and his mom and his two sisters and his auntie. You know, he stood yeah. up for him. So um, there are still it, some it, good some good guys out there. That's the absolutely, moral. and that's a whole other movie we could have done. There were four movies within the movie, and. Even our PA, our production assistant, he's a great guy. Yeah. They just closed my eyes and look at him and just the, the ball of energy he was and just what he did for us. And he says, you know, we, we could have shot the behind the scenes making of and could have done a story about Hoppy Heidelberg, one about yeah. Terry and uh, even Michael Lauderslager. And I thought, you're right, but we just didn't have the time or the resources. Right. Um, so anyway, well, well anyway, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I appreciate you sharing that because I, I feel like Officer Yiki and uh, Mr. Loudenschlager's stories, they should be more known than they already are. And in my opinion, just looking at all the research and the evidence over the years that they had to have been murdered, both of them. But moving on, just because I want to touch upon um, no, your, your latest uh, release was a shadow ring. How did this come about? Well, Shadow Ring was uh, James Perloff was in town speaking at a, um, uh, I don't know if it was a libertarian, maybe that's the right word, but it was more of an independent uh, political convocation. Really good meeting. James Lane, our uh, executive director for uh, Noble Eye, and he helped out on uh, very instrumental in State of Mind, uh, was at that presentation. And he approached James Perloff afterwards and he says, you know, we've been asked by several people that emailed us. At that time, it would have been, I want to say 2012, uh, for previous, when, late, later on in 2012. Um, and we were getting ready to, to, uh. Yeah, because the Noble Lie came out 2011, yeah. so that, that would be right exactly. after that. Okay. Anyway, so it was a four hour PowerPoint presentation, but James says, well, we can't do four hours in a film. He says, would you be willing to help us condense this into an hour and a half to two hour film? And James Perloff said, yeah, it'd be great. Uh, but it was based on um, uh, the book that came out. Gosh, I forgot. Shadows of Shadows of Power. That's what it was. Yeah. And um, and then there was another one, uh, a follow-up to that. So it was that first book and then half of the second one. And he did an amazing job of helping us do a screenplay on this and was with us from day one. Just an absolute wonderful gentleman to work for. Extremely knowledgeable um, just, I, I don't know if he was a member of Mensa, but he certainly could have been just a, a, intelligent, but just a fun guy to work with. Yeah. Very patient with us. We we're asking some questions that he probably heard a million times, but, uh, was never condescending. Just, uh, if I, if I had a chance to work with James Perloff again and I had the budget, I wouldn't think twice about it. I'd pick up the phone and say, Hey, you know, you're ready to go on the second project. That's bam, snap of a finger. If he's available, he'd be on the A team immediately on the short. He's so, enough fellow is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, just a just super, super great guy. And his wife uh, at the time was very supportive, even though we'd we'd keep him on the phone for hours or, you know, we're out there interviewing them. They're very patient. And uh, so anyway, that's how that came out and uh, to be. And then uh, we 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 wanted to there was so much info. Um, well, what is the, the, what's the basic premise? I don't mean to cut you off. I apologize. But well, no, the, no, no. It was the basic from, premise for well, people out there. Basically, it's just, like I said, it's, and I mentioned this in a couple of interviews ago, 
it's a primer for people, especially the younger generation, is getting so much distorted views of history. And yeah. we wanted to basically uh, put it in between the bracket of, of right as the Spanish-American War was starting and why, and wow. just before the first, first Persian Gulf War. And, uh, and that was, we didn't want to go into 9-11. The guys from Loose Change were doing a marvelous job with that. So it's like, well, oh, yeah. we're not going to steal this. And they're doing a great job. Let them do what they need to do, you know? But it's a good so, companion piece anyway. for Loose Change, actually, now I think about it. Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, it, it, great, great project. But we took Shadow Ring and says, okay, if we heard the official narrative, what happened with the USS Maine, why, you know, why the Spanish crown would be completely idiotic enough to attack a ship in the, in the Havana Harbor is, it, it, come on. Yeah, oh, Jesus. the whole you're remember the name. Iron, yeah. Yeah, you're talking about iron ships to, compared to their wood. They didn't have anything near that. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to be... You have to be completely insane to do that. Um, so, you know, of course, Hearst and Yellow Journalism, that whole thing we covered. Then we went into World War One, uh, World War Two, the Pearl Harbor. My God. Well, this is essential. General- this is essential yeah. into understanding the whole concept of false flags and how our world really works. And especially with Pearl yeah. Harbor. Yeah. The, the War Department, uh, the head of uh, Secretary of War under Roosevelt, him and Roosevelt and their top uh, members of the administration sitting on that intel for 10 days, not sharing it with uh, Admiral Kimmel or General Short, and then having the mendacity and the gall to put them up on indictment and and charges of incompetence in in the war. It's like, well, no, you set these guys up to fail, and then you're going to let them swing in the wind. Are you you completely off your rocker or what? And luckily they had some sharp attorneys that uh, stood up for them, and they were exonerated of all charges posthumously how many years later uh in the u.s senate i believe in the early 90s they said no these guys it wasn't their fault that pearl harbor happened they weren't given the intel you know so uh wow and then then we go into um i think right after the vietnam war and how that that, the whole thing was was crazy general partner yeah yeah so but uh, I know we're running against time here. Well, you, so, you were, we were just uh, about to mention General Parton, and I cut you off. Sorry. No, 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 no. He he was great. He was our expert consultant on uh, the uh, the Oklahoma City case, and I was very honored to visit him in his home in October of 2003. Um, oh, wow. And, uh, well, within, away, right? it, yeah, he, he passed on, I think, two or three years ago. But okay. he said there were only two times – if I'm going to wrap this up real quick, and we could continue on another conversation if you want, you said yeah, the only no, two I times. Ever... I, I, yeah, I'll, I'll, I won't step on your toes, sir. No, that's all right. Two times that he actually stayed up all night, uh, and the first time was when he had. Can you imagine planning the the bombing and the the armament needed to execute the Tet Offensive yeah. in in Vietnam? Jesus. I mean, we're talking, you're rolling at B-52s, the huge ordnance. They're getting this stuff out of, you know, the B-52 base north of London and flying them down the Middle East over to Asia and the bombs. And and they have to stay within the rules of engagement to minimize civilian casualties, picking your targets, and to just blow that crap out of this stuff in the middle of the night, in the dark of night. And uh, he said the only other time he ever stayed up overnight was to write the report of what he did on the Oklahoma City bombing, and I thought, wow, wow. that's pretty sobering. Yes. Yeah. 
Uh, and he well, ended up sending that to every member of Congress. So go ahead. Well, Chris, I want to, I just want to thank you right now for, uh, taking the time. And I hope you will come back many, many, many more times to talk about various topics in your other films. But the most I, important thing I want people to know is how can they support your work and how can they watch your films the right way? If you know what I'm saying. Absolutely. Yeah. Just uh, please don't watch the priority copies on YouTube. And here's the bonus to this whole thing. Here's the uh, cherry on the top. You can watch them for free on our website because yes. we get paid by the ad revenue. If you be patient enough, just they sprinkle in about six or seven ads throughout the film. But that's how we get paid, guys. So it's no money out of your pocket. We get paid. It's a win-win situation. And if you see any pirated copies, uh, feel free to let me know. I'll give you my email address. And I, I have to go back every two weeks on YouTube and discover that. And we're finding some on Rumble now. It just, it's C.C. Emery, C-C-E-M-E-R-Y at ProtonMail.com. If you want to let me know, if you find any pirated copies, just cut and paste the URL link. Or if you want to donate uh, to us, just uh, like, you know, I can let you know how to do that via email, too. So thank you so much for your time and your support, Chris. It means a lot. Oh, absolutely. And just, just in case uh, our, our signal wasn't yeah. that great, what was the email one more time and the website? Sure. It's ccemery, uh, C-C-E-M-E-R-Y, at protonmail.com, and the website is freemindfilms, with an S, freemindfilms.com. And you can watch Click that for free, and that, should, that yeah. should be the only way that, – that is the only way to really do it right and to support exactly. this man's work and this company's great work and any uh, of their their efforts in the future. So uh, just take the time, folks, uh, and they put out quality work. State of Mind was also great. I'd love to talk to you more about that later on uh, next time too. Sure. And, uh, yeah, no, thank you for taking the time and, uh, for everyone out there, have a great weekend and till we, till we speak again. God bless you all. Thank you.